I, uh, in these small moments, these close moments where, you know, we can share more personally. Um, one of the things I've liked, it's been a hard slog for 24 years here at All Souls Christian. Resisting the pressure. You say, Evan, you don't have pressure. But other pastors like to have success. And they have paths of those success. They have programs. And some of you have actually told me as you first visited this church how thankful you were there were no programs. Well, the danger of no programs is that nothing happens. There's no evangelism. There's no giving. There's no this, that. But then you find that as you feed the saints, they start to give, and they start to talk to their friends about the Lord. And it's happening because of who they are, not because a program went before them. And I'm grateful, as I've, after had 24 years, and young men and young women have talked to me about, what can I do in the church? Some of the young men are getting together about uh, teaching each other in a Bible study. Some of the young ladies are getting together for the same purpose, just being a benefit to each other spiritually. Then you hear prayer requests about people you guys are talking to about the Lord. Graham was talking to me, oh, Thanksgiving I think it was, about evangelism and encouraging evangelism. Because uh, various people in the congregation have those things growing up in themselves. They have non-believers they talk to about the Lord. That's encouraging. And when you see the saints naturally doing, you want to encourage them to do it more and more. They're not almost unconscious of what they're doing, and whatever they're doing, they think they're the only one doing it. There are yet 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There are other people in the congregation who are going through the same kind of ministry growth about their own heart, what they can share with other people, what they can share with the unbelievers, and so as I, just initially, I wanted to say, I've noticed that, I've noticed it going on. Um, young men coming to me, and it's been a couple in the last year, a couple or three, who said, I want to consider being a better minister to people. How do I become a better minister? Because no program church, there's no seminary of all souls in Wook, Iowa, um, that we can send you off to to get your degree, your PhD. Um, but those are good words to hear from the saints. What can I do to minister? So, since you're a ministering church or wanting to grow in ministry, we're looking at Acts 20 today. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for the chance to be a benefit to one another in your Son, in your Word in the gospel, and we'd ask that you'd raise us up, each one of us, to be characters who represent your gospel faithfully, who understand it truly, and are eager to let others know. Thank you for this morning, in your son's name, amen. Well, Acts, Acts 20 is a favorite passage of mine, and, and 
it's one of those situations I know I turn to it a lot in private conversation. It has been a while since I spoke on it in church. It's on St. Paul's last missionary journey. It's on in between him being in Greece and he's heading back to Jerusalem. Up at the top of the page, he is just leaving Troas, which is, I've decided I need to buy one of those um, laser computer projectors that you just hold in your hand, and I can just turn around and go, you know, right there. You know, big map of Greece and little ship on the waves, all sorts of, it'd be really, if we had programs, we could do that sort of, if I had a secretary. Well, this is, Troas is near Troy, where Troy was, right where the, the Bosphorus, the Black Sea, empties into the Aegean. Draw yourself a mental picture right there. He's been in Troas, and he's heading south. Going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, a little bit further down the coast uh, south, intending to take Paul aboard there. This we is the we of Luke. Luke and the rest of the companions of Paul are going by boat, because for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Isos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos, these are two islands midway down the coast of Turkey. And the day after that, we came to Miletus. Now Miletus is a, is a coastal port city southwest of, Ath of, of Ephesus. Ephesus had been a port city, and it slowly silted in the river it was on. I think it's the Meander, but I don't know if, it's, if I'm right there. But, um, so Ephesus is still a notable city, but he has bypassed, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So down there in a coast city, not many miles away from Ephesus, he's called the pastors up in Ephesus, where he had spent three years teaching them uh, earlier in his um, uh, uh, career there, and um, established the church. And so these are all people he knows. And he's called them down to the port city kind of like for a retreat, a pastor's retreat, with the, with the uh, head guy coming through. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you all the time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. You yourselves know. When he finally came into Asia on the third missionary journey, down into Ephesus, he ministered to these guys. And he's saying, you know what I was like? One of the dangers of, a, of international levels of communication, things change. It's not merely my conversation face-to-face -face with you is now Skype. It means I don't see your life. I think I see it because we're friends and we Skyped once last month. But you've lost something. You don't see how they're doing. Live in a small town like Moscow, a small town like Ephesus. Spend three years with the church there. They all know. There have been many times when 
I, one of the guys I was named for, Evan Roberts, who led the Welsh Revival in 1905. Um, my dad really looked up to him. He was, a, he was a true believer who really wanted to serve the kingdom, uneducated, All of Wales repented at the preaching of Evan Roberts. That is why they sing hymns at Welsh soccer matches. They're all godless now, but they sing hymns at Welsh soccer matches because um, of Evan Roberts' Welsh, Welsh revival. He had a crisis, not of faith, but he got depressed later on in life and, and had a, a, a few years of, of uh, died in obscurity, never losing where he was with the Lord in terms of things, but I needed to know, you know knowing somebody, your name for a guy, um, I think Evan Bruce, Bruce for Robert the Bruce of Scotland, but he had leprosy, but we won't go into that. He freed Scotland. But Evan Roberts uh, had his downtime in his life where he wasn't doing well with the Lord in terms of his own rejoicing, uh, kind of a, uh, personal crisis. You yourselves know how I lived among you all the time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Especially when it tells ministers, and this is something, so why am I telling you, why did I have that little introduction about encouraging you to do more of evangelism, edifying one another, growing in grace so that you can tell one another the things of God. And, and now we're talking to Paul, an apostle, talking to the ministers of Ephesus. Well, you're supposed to be hearing this not as the parishioners of the ministers of Ephesus, but as people who are beginning to pick up the baton of ministry to one another. In Bible study, ministry to one another in conversation and fellowship, ministry to the lost in the gospel, that's what you're picking up. So I want you to hear it the same way. You yourselves know how I lived among you. There's a passage in Peter where it talks about elders not as one domineering over the flock, but setting an example. Well, setting an example has to be seen. You have to live amongst them. They have to see how you speak to your wife how you raise your children, whether your children rise up and call you blessed at the end of the day. They need to see what kind of person you are. So that even when you fail, they see you turning to God for the grace of God. Even when you sin, you know how to deal with sin like a Christian. Your own sin. As you grow in a desire to minister, as you grow in a willingness to be led that direction, you're going to have opportunities to listen to a lot of different people, read a lot of books. I was in a discussion day after Thanksgiving. We had some people over to eat our leftovers with us. People I didn't know, and some I did. And um, we were having leftovers, and we ended up talking about a famous Christian minister. And uh, one I've heard preach, he's good. Um, I think he's a, he's a gifted pastor. Uh, he's written some books, and I, this guy had asked me 
what I thought of book A he had written. And before I realized that he was asking for me to approve it, I said some things about it that were not entirely complimentary. On the way he handled the scriptures in that book, I happened to have the book. Then I realized, oh my gosh, he liked the book. He was blessed by the book. I dig myself out of this. Um, so we got the book out. We were looking at how he handled the text and why I objected to it. Even though I agreed with what he was saying, I just don't like to see people who are going to be growing in grace, learning the example of ministry that doesn't hold close to the Word of God. You're going to look to a lot of things. As you grow and you're going to say, you know, all souls is just not putting out enough for me to grow like I need to grow. If I'm going to minister, I'm going to have to start reading some notable things. I'm going to pursue things. Watch who you pursue. You want to be sure. I've mentioned this before, but the top marriage book we used to hand out at Crossroads Bookstore, turned out the guy was having a seven-year affair with his secretary. The book was called Magnificent Marriage. Working out for him. You yourselves know how I lived among you. You know that it matters, that whatever is being said is ma being matched in the, on the part of the person saying it. As a growing minister of the gospel and of teaching, don't ever drop that down to second-class status or to your attention. You know that you have to live. What you're claiming to non-believers is the greatest thing since sliced bread. The life of great peace. They say, I don't see peace in you. Well, I've heard it about it at church. In our doctrine, it says that the peace that passes understanding. Are you walking through life with the peace that passes understanding? We not only look to teachers that give an example, we make sure that as we grow, we example what we minister. And you say, that was the first verse you started talking about. Dear heavens, we're never going to make it home. Now let's move on. Let's have hope. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which befell me through the plots of the Jews. Now when he says, you know how I lived, he is saying, why don't you look at me and see how ministry is done. And let's all admit something here. I've been commenting lately on all the different Theologians, people are calling, this century C.S. Lewis, <laughs> in their dreams. We'll see in another century if they remember any of those names. And we're a church that is shaped by this Jew. North Idaho, other side of the world. I don't know if it's polar opposite from Jerusalem. 2,000 years, other side of the world, and we're talking about his life like he was here to know. We're looking at him and saying, how did he live? Let's all look at how St. Paul lived. 
you want to be that kind of minister. There are very few in Christian history. Serving the Lord with all humility. Who is wise and understanding among you? Isn't that what it says in James? Where's James? James 3. By his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You can't dodge the need for humility. Aggressiveness is more successful. Okay? Kind of a smash mouth approach to things. And a lot of times people, you either get the person going off into the professional clergy who looks like there's some, you know, uh, uh, bloodless soul that just needs a place with no heavy lifting to work. And other people like to go into religion because they have got, you know, a certain verve. Everyone has got to know that humility is what the service of God requires. What the wisdom of God is built on. Humility in trials, with tears and with trials which befell me. We're not designing a ministry that gets so successful that we can be in the non-Christian's face about our success. We know that what we preach, Christ and Him crucified, is humbling itself of a dead Savior. But he did not shrink, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. This is a great description of Paul's ministry. Anything profitable. And I won't, what did he say? I won't shrink from declaring it to you. Nothing is going to make me too embarrassed to answer a particular question. Whether you're embarrassed by what the church has always said, or what you're embarrassed about what the non-Christians are going to say, because there are some things in Christ, in the faith, that oddly enough don't agree with the way the world is run these days. But saying them is not because you're smash-mouthed, but because you're humbly serving him and his word. Jesus Christ himself said, I only say what the Heavenly Father told me to say. It's going to sound smash mouth some because you're saying what God tells you to say. But you don't shrink anything that was profitable. And teaching you in public and from house to house, every opportunity. That's why you like to be, we had just a great time, both on, on Thanksgiving and the day after. We ended up with long conversations about the things of God. It's just good. House to house. And here in public. Testify both to Jews and to Greeks. That's everybody. It's another way of saying that is uh, everybody. Jews and Greeks of repentance to God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Anything is profitable, house to house, 
in public, everybody, about the gospel. Turning towards God, what Graham read earlier today about seeking God. That's what repentance towards God is. It's not the, you know, making someone feel so emotionally guilty for what they did that they feel guilt. Feeling guilt's not repentance. Feeling guilt is, you can manipulate that in people, it can go away after a few beers, after a few days, ignore it long enough. Repentance is the guilty person turning from the wicked thing called themselves and turning toward God. That's what repentance toward God is. Repentance to God is just an accident that the D is not read there. That's not some sort of hidden esoteric meaning. Repentance to God. Do you turn to God and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you wanted to have the simplest, probably the simplest biblical definition of the gospel, there you got it. Repentance to God, faith in Jesus Christ. And for the Christian, anything profitable. Any questions they have, let's answer them. Sometimes you can't answer them. Sometimes you say, let's look to the word more on that. Let's study that more. That's what Paul's ministry was like. The optimum minister who's been remembered for 2,000 years and is being taught on the other side of the world to a small group of people because it's Sunday. Would you like your ministry to have that effect? You say, I'm not going to be an apostle. That's true, you're not going to be an apostle. But you might be a real benefit to people for many, many years. One of you might end up being someone who writes really beneficial Christian teaching that is passed on to people, change people's lives. So we're looking for a humility where we're open everywhere. Now a lot of people, one of the big tensions in people is how much of your private life do you give up? And I have had to make that decision a few times. Sometimes you just say, uh, no. Let's schedule that meeting next week. Leslie and I need to hide from somebody, everybody, for a while. Even Jesus tried to hide from the crowds at times. You've got to make that decision. But you want to really have it be a struggle because you want to be available from house to house and in public, not shrinking from declaring what you've learned in Jesus Christ. Open everywhere. All things that are profitable and never straying from the account of the gospel. And knowing what that is. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, bound in the Spirit, not knowing what shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He knew he was going to get beat up at the other end of this journey. You hear it in the next chapter when Agabus actually makes a prophecy in Caesarea that he is going to be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. And everybody says, no, don't go, Paul. And he says, I've been told in every town here. Every town I go through, the prophets in the church are going, oh, you do know what's going to happen if you keep. Yes, I know. But serving the Lord is not a matter. If you're starting to measure it in terms of, 
of having an enjoyable life. That's why people go into, you know, they're going to become a professional ex, you know, athlete, lawyer. They have a career. Ministry, tragically, is a career too. Because in a roughly Christian society, Christian-ish, they respect the profession of clergy. They don't generally hunt the clergy down with a pack of dogs, chain them up, and hang them. That has happened, and probably is happening in other parts of the world today, but not in America. So American clergymen, American people who are in the ministry, find that they can set themselves up quite nicely, thank you very much. Paul didn't have that option. He knew at the end of his ministry, he's going to get beat up and thrown in jail. And the Holy Spirit reminds him in every town that's going to happen. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may accomplish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Remember, you know what sort of guy Paul is. This is you're getting a, this, this chat about what sort of guy he is. He is reminding people who knew him well over years that he had taught of what kind of guy he was. And he wrote it down. Luke wrote it down for him. So you get to look over their shoulder and go, oh, that's what kind of guy he is. That's what kind of guy, devotion to the ministry of the gospel, that if the saints had today, even though we might not go to Jerusalem and get thrown in jail, even though none of us may die, our hearts in the right place about the ministry. In our teaching, in our evangelism, that our life is precious. What I mentioned about a career in the clergy that sort of dangled in front of the clergyman, I'm a clergyman, dangled in front of a clergyman and saying, you know, it's pretty, all you got to do is say nice platitudes every Sunday morning. If only we had a church sign out front where I could put the sermon topic on it, something meaningful. I do it on Facebook. Things like, you're all rotten, repent, turn or burn. We don't want to view the ministry as a career because we are precious in our own sight. It may become a career because the gospel is precious in our sight. It may become a career because the life in Christ is precious in our sight, but not, it shouldn't be because we are precious in our sight. When you say, with the, you say, I'm thinking of Gollum, you keep using that word precious. Um, that's it, you know, are you stroking your own life and your own advancement, what you're going to have? Because you're precious and you find that Christian work is a great way to get what your precious wants. Or is Jesus Christ and the message the precious thing, and you're willing to say, I'm okay, I could go to that as a career. And it's not, a, frankly, let me tell you, there's not money in it. For some there is, but most of us don't get anything. So, think of how, what is precious to you. Don't be set aside or lured aside, either by the conceit of success. Someone listens to you. 
I struggle with it all the time. I have eh, 50, maybe 50 people here, 45. That's a conceit. What if I wrote a book and people bought it? <laughs> I'd be impossible to live with. And that's what happens to people who get successful in the work of God. They need to get beaten up a few times, I think. I think we should have roving bands of Christian discipline that they're just hired by the church, kind of the National Council of Churches, to randomly show up in some famous Christian's living room and beat the snot out of him. Give him a wedgie. Well, do whatever you have to do to make him feel like, yeah, he gave something for the kingdom. That, I'm not really suggesting that. This is on tape. I'm not advocating terrorism. Your life of any value, nor of precious to myself. He dies for the faith. Like Peter died for the faith. Many of the apostles died for the faith. Many of the early Christians died for the faith. We really don't face that. But we want to measure our hearts in accord with that. We want to say, am I being moved because I am precious to me? Is it more satisfying that I help somebody's life out or more satisfying that they listen to me? Because listening to me is fun for me. Testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. That is, that's what's precious to Paul. And now, behold, I know that all you among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. He knew his ministry to the Ephesians was at an end. There really was, I mean, he was going to write the letter to the Ephesians. That was going to show up at some point. But uh, this was it. You don't still have a newsletter that goes out not a great postal service in ancient Rome. There's not books being printed to any great degree. You, had to, you were lucky if you were a church and had any of these letters or a copy of these letters. And that's all. There wasn't that regular contact. There wasn't the St. Paul Evangelistic Crusade on TV you know, every year around the holidays so you could hear Paul preach again or get his latest book. When your ministry was over, it's like when the lights went out in antiquity, when you turned the, everybody blew the little candle out in their bedroom, because that's all the light they had when the light sun went down. The lights were out. Downtown Rome, pitch black. Because they didn't have electricity. We don't have some of the things. So when his ministry was over with them, his ministry was really over. You will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So I want you to know that. I called you down from Ephesus. You had to walk X number of miles to come see me. And I'm telling you, you know what I've lived like. You know what I'm encouraging you to do. What I'm encouraging you to be. And there's nothing in what I did that I could be blamed for failing to do it. Leslie and I were praying about a situation the other day where we realized that 
there was a situation, there was no situation, but we had not covered that topic with that person, and that topic absent, and that person had brought about that problem. I don't think it was our fault, but we were aware of it. You know, over the years, we had not thought of bringing that up. Could have been thought of, didn't we? We didn't. We didn't shrink from it, wasn't presented to us. But so well, you have to be aware that your being, your life with others, is not just whether or not somebody at a campus group says, have you felt the call to go on a short-term mission project to Guadalajara? And you, you raise money from your friends and off you go and you come back in two weeks. This is not the kind of, this is a life where you serve God's kingdom. Whether or not you ever have a body of believers or anybody listens to you as a Bible study leader, you're there to minister the gospel of God. As best and under good an understanding as you have the things of God, you're passing that on to the fellow believers. You're helping their lives. Because I have this passage out of Ezekiel 3. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require of your hand. I'll still kill him. Paul knew that. I don't know if you can read the rest of it. He has different arrangements of that responsibility. When you know what the word of God is, the gospel, obedience to Jesus Christ, following the kingdom, you know what those things are. You're living them out. Your life is consistent with it. You're humble about it. And if you don't step forward, if you shrink from declaring what God wants of you, What's good, actually, not what God wants of you, but what God wants of the saints. Fear to lose a friend. Fear to estrange a family member. Or be thought a horrible person by the society. Or you can be innocent before God of anyone's blood. Take heed to yourselves, verse 28, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his own son. Congregations are not obtained by a particular ministry, or a particular doctrine, or a particular pastor. They're obtained by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what makes a group of Christians. Take heed to yourself regarding that. This is Paul's advice section. He says, you know what I was like. You could always say, I would want to be like Paul. That's what we've said for the first part. Now he said, now what should you be like? You are, he's talking to the elders of Ephesus. Take heed to yourselves. This is something you need to watch. Not something you're waiting until some powerful message from a missionary comes along and makes you feel, oh, I should really give myself to the mission field. 
Or maybe I'm feeling, I don't believe in the call to the, you know, I, I don't believe in that kind of thing. I don't think I'm called to be a minister. I think as we grow in grace, the normal Christian life becomes evangelistic and the normal Christian life becomes a benefit. We don't hide profit from one another. So all of us listening to this need to take heed. Now what's he, what's, what's he concerned about? Well, because th- this is the body of believers, people who have been called out of darkness by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because in verse 29 he says, I know that after my departure, remember he said, I'm done with this ministry in Ephesus, you won't see me again. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is not just everybody going along to get along and okay, so we're not really ministering much to each other. So okay, we're not as deeper walk as St. Paul might want us to be. That we don't get to stand there. There's going to be someone who steps into that role for people. It's either going to be us helping each other grow in grace, ministering the gospel to people, or it's going to be somebody who's not up. I think fierce wolves is a negative image. Have you picked that up? I know that fierce... First century. Albert talks about the first century church. Let's try to remake the first century church. What? With false teachers? Have we suspect... You know, I don't suspect any of you of being false teachers. Thank you very much. But they, when they come in, they will not spare the flock. You see churches imploding. You see churches ripped apart by the egos of teachers. The demands of certain men who are domineering rather than exampling the Christian life. Take heed to yourselves. You don't become... Oh, here, let me read this. And from, Verse 30. And from among your own selves, the guys he's talking to, Not some Mormon, not some Jehovah's Witness, some obvious heretic sneaking into all souls, leading you astray to believe damnable things, but people trained by the most evangelical seminary and bona fides you can imagine. Because it's not just the doctrine, it's the heart. Because among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Because humility, which we may have just passed over, serving the Lord with all humility, man, having people listen to you is like freebasing popularity. Okay? Hitler got it. All sorts of people get it. Pastors love it. It's one of the biggest things they struggle with. To lead disciples after themselves from the group he was talking to. This is dicey. That's why he says take heed. That's why 
we're sitting here going, okay, let's think about this. Let's really think about who we are. Each one of you has that decision. Do I get to be one of the fierce wolves? One of the bad blood ministers who are going to lead away disciples after themselves? Do I seek God at all? Have I repented towards God and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Therefore be alert, verse 31. Take heed, verse 28. Therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Not only Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, not only house to house and in public, not only not shrinking, but day and night. A few paragraphs back, he's up in Troas, and Eutychus is sitting in the window listening to Paul not stop talking. Falls asleep, drops out of the window, and is killed. And Paul goes down and raises him to life again. You know the feeling. You've been in those discussions, maybe late at night at the big house, comfy leather chair, Evans going on and on and on. Smoke in the room, heat. You don't fall to your death. You might snort in such a way that everybody laughs because you were snoring. But that was his life. The things of God occupied him. And now, look at what he does. He wants you to be attentive. He wants you to be alert. Remember that you were admonished about this. Remember someone told you, laid this on your plate, said, false teachers, watch out for them. False teachers from people you trusted, watch out for them. Humility, watch out for it. The gospel, watch out for it. And now I commend you to God. Oh, that's a relief. Because so many pastors may be able to see all of this clearly and others don't see it in themselves. And they think that the path to keeping people from ever going astray is to lock them in with some loyalty to you. Did you like in Corinthians when he says, you know, Apollos and Paul and he applies it all to people who are on Paul's side. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, I'm thankful I baptized none of you, except the household of Stephanus. Part of the admonishment is not letting some sort of claim of humility through the back door turn you away from your move towards God. What Graham read earlier, you're seeking God. Commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Now you've been commended by the Apostle Paul to God himself, and that's who you seek. And his word chatted a lot with my father in recent months. Got to do something while you're sitting by the tub. 
He's commented a lot on just how the Christians today, he's, he's amazed at how little scripture they know. Even if they've read it, they don't know any scripture. Because it just goes by kind of devotionally in their mind. The word of his grace and God himself, if I pursue it, that's who we're commended to, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's what's able to do something for you. He doesn't say, I want you to go down to the St. Paul Theological Institute in downtown Athens, which we have founded, and you know, the tuition is pretty reasonable. Turn people, are you able to turn people over to God? They'll find a church. We don't need people to be evangelized so that all souls will get bigger. It's the kingdom of God. Commend them to God and commend them to the word of God. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. He understood that he will teach other places that there's an obligation of the church to be conscious of those who labor among them. But his motive here, this is a, a great thing in Paul. In all things, I have shown you that by so toiling, one must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. He just told all the elders of Ephesus, you know, it'd be a good lesson for you to support yourself. Good lesson. I think it's great for churches to support their pastors. Really, I really do. Honest. But I also think it's great for a church to think that, not for the pastor to think that. The pastor has to learn what Christ said. It is more blessed to give than receive. So how does the pastor live so that it shows that he is after that? Paul did it by working for his own support. I am, um, I know that I have perhaps turned down giving to people who have attended this church on short-term mission projects trying to raise money. I'd much rather see some young person go, I'm planning to go to Guadalajara, because I used that example earlier, and um, I'm looking for uh, uh, an extra job this summer so I can lay aside some money, not just for college, but also for this trip. If you hear of any jobs, let me know. Far better, that's just, this guy wants to minister, and he's going to work so he can minister. The guy says, and I might even take a third job because I want to take some other people with me and I want to pay their freight. That's what Paul was doing. I worked to have my necessities taken care of and everybody in my company. He said, this is a different kind of ministry. It's narrow, it's, it's broad and narrow at the same time. It seems to be exactly where appointed to what Christ came to do in us to achieve that thing in us and it seems to be wonderfully consistent it is more blessed to give than to receive Christ doesn't say that in the gospels if I recall he has a passage in Matthew 10 that says you receive without paying give without paying 
And that, in Matthew 10, is the sending out of the twelve on their mission, and he's talking to them about how they're going to be treated. He said, you receive without pay. Give without pay. And when he had spoken thus, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept and embraced Paul and kissed him. Sorrowing most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they should see his face no more. And they brought him to the ship. It would have been great to know a man like that, that was that good of an example. And you don't want to lose him. It's so rare in Christendom. It was rare in the first century. Paul's warning his first century comrades that he had taught that some of them are going to be the problem. Some of them. Look back over this and look at the things that he gives the humility, the whole counsel of God, the gospel, turning to be commended to God and to his word. Those are things that we can, all of us, adapt to our lives and become the kind of Christians and the kind of church that is ministering Christ's kingdom, not our advancement. Watching out for that. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful. You've been merciful to us. You've kept us out of any wild weirdness. Protect us against false teachers. Help us to become faithful teachers and faithful examples of the meekness of wisdom, of the power of your son's death, burial, and resurrection. Thank you in your son's name. Amen.